I appreciated the uh, introduction. I would like to point out that for a while I was simultaneously National Security Advisor and Secretary of State. And I emphasize this because never before and never since have relations between the State Department and the White House <laughs> been as harmonious <laughs> as they were in those days. <laughs> I must tell you, I had absolutely no idea what the Academy of Achievement was when I accepted uh, this invitation. And uh, I thought I could just sort of go through some foreign policy issues and leave uh, peacefully, <laughs> so far as one can do that in Ireland. <laughs> in fact, the last time I was here in Ireland, I spoke at Trinity uh, College. In the question period, somebody said, I understand that President Nixon and you were praying just before he retired from office together. What exactly were you praying to? It's not a question I'd ever been asked before. No prepared answer for it either. So I thought what I would do tonight uh, and what I was asked to do, as a matter of fact, is to tell you a little bit about how my career in, evolved, and Sam Donaldson will extract from me the uh, whatever pedantic views on foreign policy <laughs> I, have, uh, I have to put forward. Uh, <clears throat> I occasionally uh, teach at public schools in New York, and uh, I had a question period. And somebody said, you were born in Germany. He said, uh, how about the race problem in Germany? What can you tell us about that? I said, I was the race problem in Germany. He said, come on, you're putting us on. He could not imagine that one could live as a discriminated minority in a, on a non racial uh, basis, and this is what brought me to the United States, where before World War II I uh, worked in a shaving brush factory and studied accounting at night, and uh, I want to mention just a few accidental events of my life uh, for those who think one can plan one's career with uh, great care. When I was drafted into the army, I was assigned to the infantry, and I was on latrine duty one day. Uh, and the general of the division came by to inspect my company, and the company had a situation map uh, of what the situation was on the various fronts, and the general said, soldier, come over here. Explain this map to me. So I did. He said, what are you doing in the infantry? And uh, I got transferred into intelligence in, 
in this manner. Uh, so after the war, then I I went to uh, I went to Harvard, and my aim was when I wrote my PhD thesis, I was going to start a major work on the construction of peace and the disintegration of peace in the longest period of peace that Europe had known, namely in the 19th century. Because when you have seen in your own life how societies can disintegrate and how life can change and how brutal force can uh, take over even civilized societies, you develop a certain commitment to do what you can to prevent a similar situation from arising. I had always thought I would make that contribution as a scholar by writing this work about how peace was built and how war came after a hundred years. I found myself uh, in policy issues because my friend Arthur Schlesinger, from whom I wound up in the wrong party as far as he was concerned, showed me a letter he had received from a friend of his about an issue of the 50s which had to do with the reliance on nuclear weapons. And he, uh, and he uh, asked me what I thought of that and I wrote him a letter explaining why I thought that nuclear weapons could not be relied on as the principal weapon of American foreign policy. He sent that letter to Foreign Affairs. They published an article, and I got drawn into debates on that issue. Uh, I then uh, became advisor to Nelson Rockefeller, who uh, was a liberal Republican, which is now an endangered species. And uh, in 19, and I uh, plotted my ascent into the Nixon administration, about which you can read in many books about me. I plotted that by supporting Nelson Rockefeller in three primary campaigns against uh, against Richard Nixon. So. After Richard Nixon was elected president in 1968, he, in, he asked me for a meeting. He invited me to see him. And he offered me something, but I didn't know what it was because Richard Nixon, contrary to what you read, was a very shy man who hated to be rejected. And so I knew he was saying something, but I didn't know what, so I went back to Harvard. <laughs> and after a week or so, John Mitchell, who was one of his top advisors, called me up and said, well, are you going to take it or not? I said, take what? <laughs> he said, uh, oh my god, he screwed it up again. <laughs> <laughs> so I was called back to Nixon. And this time he did offer me the job. And you have to remember that as a Harvard professor, you think that the world revolves around Cambridge. 
So I said, you know, Mr. President-elect, or Mr. President, whatever I called him, I've opposed you in, for, in three successive primary campaigns uh, for 12 years, and I want to consult my friends for a week before I accept this position. He should have really told me to get lost. And he said, okay, take a week. What saved me was Nelson Rockefeller, who said to me, when the President of the United States offers you the third most important position in foreign policy, you don't bargain with him, you say yes. And has it occurred to you that he's taking a much bigger chance on you than you're taking on him? Well, that in any event is how, how I got involved in, uh, in foreign policy. And I served in an administration that had, that had to deal with a tragic aspect of American foreign policy. We got involved in a war as far away from the United States as it is possible to be on the basis of applying to Asia principles that we had learned in Europe. And the administration in which I served had the task of extricating 500,000 Americans without a debacle for the people there, 500,000 Americans surrounded by uh, a million friendly and a million unfriendly Vietnamese who might have made common cause in certain conditions. And it was a period of enormous domestic divisions, which just as we were beginning to surmount it was followed by Watergate. And yet in that period, uh, we were lucky enough to have the challenge of opening to China beginning negotiations on the limitations of weapons, and a whole series of crises. I say lucky enough because at the end of the day, when you serve in government at that level, or I would say at any level, it is the greatest opportunity that can be given to you to make a contribution to your society, and if you are lucky, to the world. If you come from academic life, as I did, you soon learn that there's a difference between an observer and a participant. An observer can pick his subject. He can work on it for as long as he wants. He has the privilege of changing his mind. He can pick the best possible solution and present it. The policymaker is overwhelmed with problems. The urgent is always in danger of driving out the important. At the end of every day as a policymaker, one of the decisions you have to make, whom you're going to insult by not returning his telephone calls, <clears throat> and to ask the question, not of how to solve the immediate problem, but where you're trying to go. It's the most awesome responsibility. And you know, you get only one guess at this question. You cannot 
say, I'll go back to the library and write another book. <clears throat> and you therefore have to assess your decisions on the basis of the worst that can happen, in addition to the best uh, that can happen. And you know, if you're thoughtful, and even if you're not, you should know that you're part of a process that takes your society and anyone you influence from where you are to where you've never been. And that on part of this journey, you're going to be alone because you're transcending the experience of your environment if you're doing your job. But if you're in a democracy, you can't be too much alone for too long or you won't have uh, the consensus. So one of the debates in my circles in all over the world is idealism against realism. They're supposed to be power-oriented people and they're supposed to be moral people. And the power-oriented people are supposed to be petty and short-sighted and the moral people are the ones that have the inspiration. But I would argue that in policy making, you really need both. That uh, all the decisions that finally have to be made that are difficult are 50.5 against 49.5. If you don't have moral convictions, you cannot navigate that course and you're going to frustrate yourself. And this, I would say, is the big challenge to the policymaker. I have a Chinese friend who claims that there exists the following Chinese proverb. I say claims because I'm not 100% sure that there are as many Chinese proverbs <laughs> as they lay upon us. But this goes as follows. When there is turmoil under the heavens, little problems are dealt with as if they were big problems. And big problems aren't dealt with at all. When there is order under the heavens, Big problems are reduced to little problems. And little problems should not obsess us. This is the challenge of policymakers. And for the students here, this is the contribution that you can make. I want to congratulate the Academy for assembling not, such a, not only such a, primary, such a distinguished group of senior people, but of so many of you who are the hope of the future. When President Eisenhower had retired from office and was, I guess, around the age that I now am, in the 
that I used to sing was a different species. <clears throat> the, uh, somebody asked him, is there anybody in the world of whom you're jealous? And he said, yes, my grandson. So I wish you all the best, and thank you for letting me come here.